we're doing the reading a little different today. We're doing a reader's theater. So we have our readers. It's all, it's almost pretty much straight out of scripture, so it's just not the ESV. So if you're trying to follow along, it's not that verse. All right, ready? Skip this one. All right, you kids read from that one. Okay. Then it's your turn. All right. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold that was 90 feet high and 90 feet deep. He set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Then King Nebuchadnezzar commanded his governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, and other officials to come from everywhere in his kingdom, to come to the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And they all gathered for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. As they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up, the herald proclaimed loudly, People of every nation and race, now listen to the king's command. Trumpets, flutes, harps, and all other kinds of musical instruments will soon start playing. When you hear the music, you must bow down and worship the statue that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. Anyone who refuses will at once be thrown into a flaming furnace. (laughs) Therefore, as soon as all the peoples heard the instruments, All the people fell down and worshipped the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Therefore, at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and maliciously accused the Jews. They declared to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You commanded everyone to bow down and worship the golden image when the music played. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. Sir, you appointed three men to high positions in Babylon province, but they have disobeyed you. Those Jews, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, refuse to worship your gods and the statue you have set up. Then in furious rage, King Nebuchadnezzar commanded, Bring Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So they brought the men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar said to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? I'm going to give you one more chance. If you bow down and worship the statue when you hear the music, everything will be all right. But if you don't, you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. No god can save you from me. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, We have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury, and the expression on his face was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He ordered, Heat the furnace seven times more than it was usually heated. Bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and cast them into the burning, fiery furnace. Then these men were bound in their cloaks, their tunics, their hats, and their other garments, and they were thrown into the fiery furnace. Because the king's order was urgent, the furnace overheated. The flame of the fire killed the men who took Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to the furnace. 
And then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego fell, bound into the burning, fiery furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up in haste. He declared to his counselors, Did we not cast three men bound into the fire? True, O king. But I see four men, unbound, walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt. And the fourth man looks like a son of the gods. Then Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the burning, fiery furnace. He declared, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out and come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out from the fire, and the officials and the government leaders and the king's counselors gathered together and checked out the three men. The king's counselors declared, The fire had no power over these men. Their hair was not singed. Their cloaks were not harmed. They did not even smell like fire. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants who trusted in him and set aside the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own. Therefore, I make a decree. Any people, nation, or language that speaks anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb, and their houses laid in ruins. For there is no other God who is able to rescue in this way. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. Here ends our reading. Wait, where's everybody going? Who's going to give the sermon? Yes, you may move that back. Thank you, Matt. Well, good morning again to everybody here, and good morning to anybody tuning in over the internet. We are glad that you are worshiping with us. Uh, in case I have not met you, my name is Patrick Cherry, and I'm the pastor here at Christ's Word Church, and we are glad that you are joining us on week two of this series that we're calling Uncompromising Daniel, and we had a wonderful reader's theater up there. Um, Darren, by the way, you make a great Nebuchadnezzar. I don't know if that's a compliment or not, but you did a good job. There are some great moments in there, uh, especially, um, Tyler, when you, when you just kind of jumped in for your, your few words. And if you could just come up here and every once in a while during my sermon go, true that, <laughs> that would be amazing. And then uh, I think it was one part, um, Darren, when you were talking about the fiery furnace and then you were looking at your daughter and it was a wonderful glance of exchange there. I didn't know if maybe you've talked about a fiery furnace at home before, but uh, thank you guys for doing that and bringing the scripture to life. This is an interesting passage that we're covering today, and you know, the sermon series is a little misleading in the name for this Sunday because Daniel's not even a part of the story on this part, is he? We're talking about his companions, and if you remember from last week, I mentioned that we give a lot of credit to Daniel, and a lot of it is due, but we can't shirk his companions either. Because this week we are learning from them. And so today we're going to be talking about uncompromising commitment. There's a great deal of commitment that we see in this passage, isn't there? And so uh, when we talk about commitment, especially with this passage, I don't think we can talk about commitment without also talking about and discussing idols, can we? Idols play a big part, especially one idol plays a big part in this narrative, and I think we're going to need to hit that head on. But before we go any further, especially if we're going to be talking about idols and hitting that head on, I think we need a little bit of prayer to lead us on. So let's go to God in prayer. 
Wonderful God, we thank you for this opportunity we have to gather in your name to worship you. This moment, this time is not about us. It's not even about what we would get out of it. It's about you and you alone. And so as we delve into your scriptures, Lord, we pray that you would speak to us through these stories, through these words that you have conveyed to the authors of your holy word. And we pray that your Holy Spirit would be upon us as we discover and learn the meaning being spoken to us today. Silence any voice in us but your own. And Lord, I pray that as my words stray from yours, may they fall away and quickly be forgotten. But may your word, your truth, and your promise be upon our hearts and our minds forever. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Commitment. I once heard commitment defined this way with a little story. So imagine with me, a pig and a chicken are walking along on a road. The chicken says to the pig, hey pig, I was thinking we should open a restaurant. Pig replies, hmm, maybe, but what would we call it? Chicken responds, okay, look at it, it's this way, we'll call it ham and eggs. Pig kind of thinks for a moment, waits for a moment and then says, you know, chicken, no thanks. And, and, and chicken says, well, well, why pig? I mean, it's a great idea. People will flock to it. He said, no, no, no thanks. I, you see, I would be committed and you'd just be involved. Perhaps you've heard a variation of that story before. The pig, of course, being committed because how do we get ham? Whereas the chicken to drop a few eggs here and there, you know, it's just involvement. And, and that's kind of what we're going to be talking about a little bit. Not ham and eggs or chicken and pigs, but involvement versus commitment. Because there's a difference, isn't there? And sometimes we think that we're so committed, but are we just involved? And so we're looking at Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego today. And they are more than just involved in the situation they are truly committed, are they not? And so let's take a look, a little closer look at this. We're going to look at um, we're going to look at this passage really through three lenses. There's kind of three major movements that, uh, that we're seeing. We're going to talk about erecting idols, confronting idols, and then deconstructing idols. So let's start first by looking at the erection of the idol, how it is created. We see in verse 1, King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits and its breadth 6 cubits and set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. And so here we have this big golden statue of some kind. Now, scholars argue whether this was a self-image of Nebuchadnezzar. It could have been or it could have been of one of his gods. We really don't know. All we know is that it was an idol. And people were asked to worship this idol, this big golden image. You know, we live in a world of idols, don't we? I mean, perhaps we aren't worshiping these big golden idols, but we live in a world of idols. And perhaps the statue, it's not a Perhaps you don't have a golden statue of yourself on your front lawn, and if you do, 
let's talk afterwards. We probably need to have a deeper discussion than the sermon allows. But there are plenty of things that form idols in our life. What are some of the idols that you see in our lives today? Sports. Oh, you had to go there. Mm. And the first one, you had to go there. What was that? Technology. What are you talking about? I don't have an addiction to my phone. Anybody else? TV. Entertainment. What else? What are some of the other idols? iPhones. Absolutely. Status. Mm -hmm. Money. <laughs> money, 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 money. I had to throw in the last one. Can't say the first part without saying. It's just not complete. Anybody else? Children. Because mm -hmm. that's what's hard. I mean, idols aren't just bad things, are they? Good things can become idols in our lives if they're not in the proper place. So a lot of times, really good things. You know, the seduction is subtle, isn't it? To some of these idols. They don't. I mean, for instance, children don't necessarily come off at the top of your mind of, oh, my children are an idol in my life. It can be a subtle shift, a subtle change over time, and then we slip into idol worship without even realizing it. And someone mentioned technology. No, technology does form, because here's a picture of one of my idols. Your Facebook feed. Here's my profile on Facebook. Isn't it interesting how we can put our idols on the internet for people to like and comment on. And, and I'm not going to be the person to stand before you to say, all technology is bad, we should just go back to the Middle Ages because it's bad. Because there are advances that we can utilize all this technology for, but there can be such a subtle shift. I mean, just this week they showed an interview with Sean Parker, one of the former presidents of Facebook, that helped kind of, I'd say, spring forward the company uh, with Mark Zuckerberg, and he mentioned one of the big secrets that was it really wasn't all that much of a secret of all these social media platforms is that they know they are playing with your psychology. They are playing into our need for social acceptance. And so there's this feedback loop of social acceptance as people like your stuff and you feel, oh, wow, this is great. You know, 31 people have liked what I've had for dinner since I took a picture of it and put it on here. And, and you feel this acceptance. And then the whole goal is to get you to stay on there as long as possible. That's the goal of the platform. This is any social media. And before anybody feels too smug in here because you're like, well, I don't have a Facebook page, so I don't do that. We all have our idols, don't we? And we all look for acceptance. It's interesting as I go around talking to people and sharing the vision of our church. And I have a presentation that I've been giving you know, one of the things I, I mentioned is that one of the growing, fastest growing demographics in our country are people who profess no faith whatsoever, no affiliation. That's one of the fastest growing demographics in our country. And even in our area, it's one of the fastest growing demographics. People would rather believe there is no God than there is a God. And so people even talk about it, the death of God. You see all this postmodern thought of, you know, God is dead now. But it's interesting, as I was reading Tripper Longman's commentary of Daniel, 
he, made, he points out this consequent of that line of thinking. He said, when God is dead, the self must replace it. In a sense, this might seem to be the opposite of Daniel 3, but it's not. It's not so much a ridding the world of God, but replacing of God by another God, the self. When we look at our idols, we talk about money, you know, we talk about fame and everything, but what is the root idol of all of this? It's self. I believe it was, I'm going to butcher it a little bit, but it was um, Tim Keller said that money is never the idol. It just shows you where your idols are. Isn't that interesting? Money isn't the idol. It shows you where your idols are. Here in our modern or postmodern society, in the absence of God, we have to create our own meaning. No longer does Christ give us meaning in that mindset, but we feel the will and power and the joy of constructing our own meaning in the absence of the gods. All substitutes for God are ultimately the idol of self. And there's great pressure to worship our idols, isn't there? We see in our passage in verse 6, And whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast and burn, burning in the fiery furnace. Go back to Darren saying that. He said it with good force. To the fiery furnace. And maybe you're not going to be cast literally into a fiery furnace today, but there is immense pressure for idol worship, isn't there? There's an immense pressure and addiction to idol worship. John Calvin once provocatively charged the human mind as a factory of idols. He said, we are a factory of idols. And he said, we are constantly, even as Christians, in a struggle with this temptation. A factory of idols. In our pursuit of money, fame, notoriety, ambition, all of these things, it's the idol of self. <laughs> I needed some music, didn't I? Even worry can be an idol. Have you ever thought of this? We read in one of our in our study recently uh, in Tuesday mornings that uh, worry is likened to to pride. And I went, okay, how do you, how do you draw the connection to? I said, well, when you think you know how things should be going better than how God does, isn't that arrogance? Isn't that pride? And that's at the root of worry, is we don't trust. And therefore, pride takes over. So all of these things point to our first main point. In a world of idols, following Jesus requires commitment. We live in a world of idols. We live in a country of idols. We live in a home of idols. We have idols, and they're constantly bombarding us. So to follow Jesus requires great commitment. To be a true follower of Jesus, you can't just be involved, can you? It takes commitment. It's more than being involved. It's being devoted. It's uncompromising commitment. And we see that with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, don't we? And this was a long time ago they lived in a world of idols, but we still live in a world of idols today. So following Jesus isn't just something you can do in your free time. It's something that we have to commit to. 
just as I would argue a marriage is not something you can just do in your free time. It's something you have to commit to. And if it's going to work and it's going to stand the test of time and the bumps in the road, you have to be committed. Jesus requires our commitment. So the idols go up, and then we have to confront them. We have to acknowledge them. And so Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in our, in our story today, they are kind of thrown into the scene, aren't they? Because they are singled out. In verse 12, we see there are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon. Here, I think I even have it up on the screen. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the gold image that you have set up. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered their king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us out of the hand, out of, out of your hand, O king. Actually, let's stop at verse 16, 17. So here we have these men. They refuse to bow down. They didn't make a big hullabaloo. In fact, we were even, it, we were even led to believe that the king didn't even notice. He didn't notice this small group of people. They didn't make a big deal out of it. They just said, we can't worship that idol. So they stood while everyone else bowed. Someone else points out to the king, hey, 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 look at these guys over here. Isn't it interesting how people jump in real quickly? Others will not like sometimes what we stand for. And I can tell you as a follower of Jesus, if you commit to a life with Christ, others will not like it. There will be people who will ridicule, ridicule you and stand in your way and try to thwart you sometimes. But yet we have to stay convicted. But the king doesn't see theirs. It's just kind of this non-spectacle. And even notice their response. It doesn't seem so much rude as it does just strong and committed. Again, they don't make a big spectacle, but they're very clear. It's clear that their standing and not saying anything wasn't hiding cowardice because they stand before the king and they plainly say what they mean. They boldly proclaim their belief. And that's when, in verse 19, then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury and the expression of his face was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He ordered the furnace heated seven times more than it was usually heated. Because the king's order was urgent and the furnace overheated, the flame of the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Wow. That's just to show you how dangerous. This wasn't a spectacle of a furnace. This, this thing was really hot. It killed the guys taking up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. We see the response of the king. We must not be fooled. Making a commitment to follow the ways of our God has consequences. Anybody who tells you that a life with Jesus is just easier is not telling you the whole truth. In some ways, it's even harder. Is it worth it? Absolutely. In fact, I believe it's the only true way to live, but it has consequences. Following Jesus does not mean your life is easier. 
there's a temptation to take the path of least resistance, isn't there? And the temptation toward idolatry is strong. So this leads us to our second point. Commitment to Jesus is moving ourselves from pedestal to altar. In a world of idols, it's easy for us to put ourselves up on the pedestal. But is that where we are supposed to be? No. Because wasn't it even Paul himself who says in Romans 12, we are to offer ourselves as what? A living sacrifice. A living sacrifice. But I once heard this said about living sacrifices. Is that the problem with being a living sacrifice is we keep crawling off the altar. It's a perpetual thing. We have to continually removing ourselves because before we know it, we've climbed the pedestal without even realizing it. And we've dethroned God in our heart, and there we are standing, worshiping our own image without ever even realizing it. We have to constantly remove ourselves from the pedestal. We have to look how we're spending our time, how we're spending our resources, where our attention is going, what is important in your life right now. Look at your calendar. Look at your checkbook. You'll see what's important to you. If we want to be committed, we have to continually remove ourselves from that pedestal. It's a commitment. And you know what? Just being involved isn't going to take care of that for us. We need to be more than just involved. We need to be all in because God wants all of you, not just a part of you. God's desire is to be with us. We are made for God, and God goes to great lengths to show us this truth. And so we have built up these idols. Now we've confronted them. So now we have to move forward and we have to deconstruct these idols. And so we move forward. The companion's commitment lands them in the fire, quite literally, doesn't it? There's consequences for their commitment. But then we see in verse 24, an interesting thing developed. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up in haste. He declared to his counselors, did we not cast three men down into the fire? They answer and said to the king, true, O king. He answer, answered and said, but I see four men unbound, walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. This is a curious account, isn't it? And this is where commentators have a lot of fun trying to look at who is the identity of the fourth person. And the reality is the scriptures don't make it plainly clear but there are some big hints to what God is doing here. In the midst of this great blazing fire, these three men stand unscathed. Again, Trimper Longman wrote, writes this, The companions trusted in the saving power of God, but it is provocative to reflect on the way God chose to deliver the three men from the fire. Calvin pointed out that if God wanted, he could have extinguished the flames of the fire in order to save the three men. He saved them in the fire, not from the fire. He saved them in the fire, not from the fire. They were in the very jaws of death. 
And moreover, he could have saved them without further fanfare, simply having them walk out of the fire unscathed, but instead he chose to save them by the presence of a fourth who looked like a son of the gods. Isn't that interesting? God saved them in the fire, not from the fire. How often are we praying God to save us from the fire? God, save me from this fire, save me from this trial, but yet it doesn't happen, and at the end we're like, okay, God, well, I guess you didn't answer my prayers. But yet we come out on the other end, sometimes knowing far more than we did going into the fire. Because here's the truth. God doesn't always save us from the fire. Sometimes, sometimes he does. But so often he doesn't. But if we look around and we have the perspective, we'll realize that God is with us in the midst of the fire. That if we look next to us, Jesus is right there with us. It doesn't mean things are always going to turn out the way we want them to. But if we are committed to our God, we realize that our God is committed to us far more than our commitment could ever be to him. Jesus stands with us. And it's the beauty of this that we see in this story that there's a change of heart even in Nebuchadnezzar. Therefore, I make a decree, any people, nation, or language that speaks anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb and their houses laid in ruins for there is no other God who is able to rescue in this way. As a result of their great commitment and God's saving power, the situation changes. And people see the work of God, of the one true God. At least for a little bit. Because we know that chapter 3 isn't the end of the story of Daniel, is it? The story continues and doesn't end there. And this points us to our third and final point. Commitment is a dedication to the process and not just the outcome. Commitment is dedication to the process and not just the outcome. Because how often are we committed to the outcome more than we are to the process of getting there? I'm extremely guilty of this. When we go on trips, I'm so focused on getting to the end destination. Kate, not so much. Kate likes the process. You know, hey, there's a stand on the side of the road. Let's stop and check it out. I'm thinking, no, it's not on the itinerary. If you need to go to the bathroom, we will stop, and you will go quickly so we can get back in the car because I'm looking at the ETA on my GPS, and I'm trying to beat it. Am I the only one? Okay, no. We like the end product. And how often we do this with our children. It's like, oh, gosh, when my child just gets here, it'll be so much better. How much we miss of their lives in the process of them getting here. Because the outcome is never enough for us so often. And God is teaching us through the process. If we can get through the struggle, we so often miss the joy of the journey and the struggle. A life with Jesus is so much more than a get out of hell free card. It's so much more than the eternal life that we are offered, which is a beautiful, amazing gift. And we're not downplaying that. But following Jesus makes a difference right here and now. It makes a difference how we live on this earth, not just how we live after we die. 
And God is using this life as a process to develop us further and further into the people who were created in his image. But we've tarnished it up because we built this own idol around us that God keeps having to chip away at it. And if we but pay attention, we can see so much. Going back to the image of marriage, I believe this is why we have such a high rate of divorce in our country. It's because people are committed far more to the outcome than they are the process of marriage. Because you know what? The honeymoon wears off. That whole happily ever after, that's a joke. It's only found in fairy tales. Because to stay happy requires a process and it requires a choice that you make each and every day. And there are times when that's really tough. And when, they, when the Beatles saying love is all you need, that is partially a lie. Because you need commitment to go with that love. Because love is a choice. It's more than just a feeling. And why talk about this to a room of people of different marital statuses as well? It's not just because it means something to us in our marriage relationships, whether we have them or not. But Scripture uses the image of marriage to describe our relationship to God so often. The church is the bride of Christ. Jesus is the bridegroom. And you know what? Jesus is committed to us. We see it over and over again. Will we be committed to him? Dedication, our commitment, is a process. We build these idols. We have to confront them, and we have to tear them down. In our non-committal culture, we need commitment more than ever. We need committed people. We don't need wishy-washy, halfway-in people. People who just want to be involved for a little bit. We need commitment. Jesus needs commitment. We need unwavering devotion to the cause of God. And it's not easy. Because idols are being erected all around us. And the pull to worship them is strong. But we must confront them. And we must call them out for what they are. It takes boldness. And if we hope to live into the fullness of this beautiful and fulfilling life God has set before us, we must commit ourselves to the process of deconstructing these idols in our lives. We commit to what we see as important. Are you ready to place God at his rightful place on the pedestal of your heart? And you take your place on the altar. It's the only way it's going to work. Let us pray. Almighty God, we thank you for your call to us to devotion. It's not one that is a mean or commanding call in that way, but it's truly a call from love because you see how out of alignment our lives tend to be. And if we but commit and come and stay in your presence, we will have life and have it abundantly. In Jesus' name we pray and all the saints said.